Welcome to Heels in the Courtroom, a podcast about successfully navigating law and life, featuring the women trial attorneys at the Simon Law Firm. Hey, everyone, and welcome to another episode of Heels in the Courtroom. This is Erica Slater, and today I'm joined with Liz Lenevy and Elizabeth McNulty. Hey, ladies. Hello. Hi. And I am so happy to be moderating today, if you will, because my esteemed colleagues here today with me have just won a plaintiff's verdict this week in trial, which we are so happy to announce. And there's a special side note. This was one of Elizabeth's first roles, being able to handle witnesses and do her own thing in front of the jury. So we have lots of questions about that. You have been training for this day for quite some time. And so tell us, how how was it? Reflecting after, I don't know, a cool 48 hours after getting your verdict, how'd you find it? I was pretty nervous, I'd say, but I'm really glad that it's the first time is over because it felt like a long time coming it became like a joke that every like thing I got involved in settled right before like this is not the first time that Liz has pulled me in like you know a month or two before something's about to get tried like hey will you help me try this case and I'm yeah sure would love to and then it would settle like right before so it just became like a running joke that I was some kind of like good or bad luck for something to settle <laughs> right before. My, my thought process was I, you know, we filed that entry of appearance that says Elizabeth McNulty on it. And these defense attorneys were, were running to pull out their, their checkbooks. That's what I figured was happening. <laughs> that, me too. Yeah, just, <laughs> they just, were like, she's the secret weapon yeah. in most of our recent victories. And clearly it worked here too. So thanks, Elizabeth. <laughs> yeah, you're welcome. Really just uh, put the fear of God in them. So. But it was really fun. I guess when it takes so long for it to actually happen, the more you build it up in your mind of how, like, intimidating and scary it is. And then, like, once it's over, it's like, oh, like, you're just, like, talking to people or, like, in front of people. And it's, like, just, like, another thing that this job is about. So it was fun. And I'm excited to do it again, hopefully sooner rather than later. And it doesn't take another, you know, four years to happen again. (laughs) That would be great. Well, you two had the privilege of having Amy come to trial with you guys Mm -hmm. as well. So your first trial where you had a role is this all-female trial team, which Mm -hmm. I couldn't be more proud of. And such a great way to try a case, too, because you two were taking the lead on most of the presenting the evidence and putting on the witnesses. But you had Amy there the whole time to kind of shepherd you through things and bounce things off of she makes trial more fun in my opinion no matter what case I'm trying yeah and I feel like Liz and Amy are both like a calming presence they're not people that make me feel nervous and I can't say that about like anyone I would work with it's probably also because like they're women and like they already know that like we are our own worst critic and so they like keep that in mind and kind of like pump you up instead of like you know make you more nervous so yeah it was was like a really fun experience I would happily do it over again and it was a it was a big plus that it was a a positive outcome yeah throughout the day Amy would just sort of give (laughs) general advice and 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 things to encourage us both I had been handling the the case since the beginning and she was coming in to really help with everything jury related. We kind of, we were trying to figure out, well, well, who's everyone's role? And she's like, well, Liz, your first chair, Elizabeth, your second chair. She's like, so what, what, what am I? And we, we kind of dubbed her the, 
the jury consultant or the, the, the jury whisperer. <laughs> the jury I mean, yeah, <laughs> right. So because what she did was she she obviously picked the jury, but then she also helped with the jury instructions, which was those are always incredibly difficult. But definitely having Amy there was a calming presence. It, it always is. I, I think that she's got the right attitude, which is you need to hear the positives in trial like we're, we're already aware of the criticisms like there are definitely things that reflecting back on it now I'm like ah, I shouldn't have done that or I could have done this better but having someone there to just sort of keep you uplifted that's it I, I that's an immeasurable help because you need someone there to keep you motivated especially if you're struggling to find that yourself and so Amy was, I'm very appreciative that Amy was there and able to help with us. Elizabeth's work in this trial was very substantive. She put on one of our plaintiffs, the husband in this case. Elizabeth came to the, the client prep with me and was very helpful there as well. But then in addition to that, she adversely put on uh, a corporate representative, which is not, yeah, it doesn't happen in every case. It's something that I think actually we did a, an episode on it a couple couple of weeks ago about how rare it is. And so, you know, Elizabeth's first time in trial, actually the first witness she put on, she's adversely crossing a corporate representative and she knocked Which it out of the park. Like no small feat. Like right, what a right. skill like to have is, I don't know, that's a real badge of honor. Lady, congratulations. Yeah, thank you. It was, it was, I was very appreciative for the opportunity. I took the gentleman's deposition the mm-hmm. week before oh. it was in it was an interesting case because there were three corporate representatives two of them served as experts in their own case as well so they were reproduced right before trial as experts and it was it was kind of unique to me I'd never had that happen before so I took his depot and so I at least had met him before and you know he was a he was a professional gentleman so you know it was fun it was it was a fun thing to do but yeah corporate rep adversely was it was a fun first you know little little trial endeavor I'd say so what was your approach did you like outline exactly how you wanted to lead him through were there things that like you had to pivot while you had him on the stand did he give you permission to like get a tone or go after him at all I'd gotten a bunch of like solid admissions in his previous deposition and there were some good ones from his his first deposition and I mainly used those and the way the case was set up the defendants were pointing the fingers at each other so we kind of just used him to set up the other defendant and Mm -hmm. then so it was it was like a fairly like tame cross I'd say I didn't have to get in his face too much yeah she did have to impeach him though oh she did do an impeachment where he, he gave a, an answer that was inconsistent with his prior testimony. And I, I saw Elizabeth kind of backing up. She knew that she had to pull out that deposition and she set it up and she nailed the impeachment of it. And so actually all three of the corporate representatives in this case got impeached at some point. They all were trying to wiggle out of their prior testimony. And so the strategy with him was to get him to give the admissions we needed to set up the other defendants, but also obviously we we were still going after him. We still had some some allegations of negligence against him, and Elizabeth had gotten some really great admissions during her step with that. Thank you very much. It was the first trial I'd been to, I because I've, I've attended like several trials, obviously, where the judge didn't take objections up at sidebar. Like 
I feel like usually they're not in the presence of the jury because you don't want all of that to happen, but it occurred right in front of the jury, and there were several objections, like, right at the beginning when I started, and it was a little unnerving. The judge yeah. was quite kind to me on one of them that he sustained, though, and I, because I wasn't really sure how to address it and he just told me how to ask the question in a different way which <laughs> which I found to be very kind hey what's wrong with that that's yeah. not bad okay so Liz I know you worked up this whole case brought Elizabeth in at the end to try it with you mm-hmm. Amy came to trial with you guys as well give me the setup it was a slip and fall ice and snow and your defendants were who there was a commercial property manager because this happened at an office setting there was also a snow removal contractor who had signed the contract with the property management company to take care of the um, lot for the entirety of the winter season this was back in 2019 Um, and then below the contractor was a subcontractor who was responsible for doing the actual work that morning because as we learned in discovery there were two subcontracting groups but they had different responsibilities so we were looking at only one of them for that particular morning so I had done sort of a preliminary investigation gotten some records figured out who the adjusters were in the case the insurance companies I guess we're not in trial so I can talk about insurance (laughs) And I tried to settle this pre-suit and they refused to talk to me, like not even, you know, lowball me an offer. They just said, no, we find no responsibility here. (laughs) And I said, "Okay, bet. (laughs) I have a little thing called the law here that may say differently. (laughs) So I so I filed suit and this was back in 21. So it took us just around two years to get to trial. That's pretty good. Yeah, not a bad turnaround. We did lose an, an initial trial date. It got continued once, and actually it was really helpful that it got continued, and I'll get into that. But the setup to the lawsuit was back in December of 2019, my client, who was and is a self-employed court reporter, was going to an office building for a 7 a.m. deposition. And this particular office building was in Clayton. It's a sort of one of the big commercial areas in St. Louis. And she pulls into this lot. And I learned so much about the particular structure of this area. It's actually a parking deck, meaning it's an elevated surface. There was underground parking available, you know, directly underneath the deck. So we're not talking about flat surface. And then on top of that, there was this weird coating or membrane on top of the deck, which is supposed to, I guess, make the concrete last longer. But either way, those two aspects of it make a particular property like this highly susceptible to refreeze during the winter. Like it's going to... Because it's not this thick solid going like a concrete asphalt on top of like dirt. Correct. Because you've got cold air flowing underneath it. Like bridges freeze in winter. Those signs you see. Yes. And then on top of it, add this really weird film or skin membrane coating. All gross words for a parking lot. (laughs) So many words. And I've been to this parking lot. I went and visited a couple of times and it's just it's an odd setup, but it is what it is. She gets in around 640 a.m. because you know, anyone who knows court reporters know that the good ones show up early so that they're mm-hmm. set up ready to go when the deposition is set to start. She does a full loop around 
the parking deck and it's a pretty small spot. I think only about 40 cars or something like that can even fit on this deck. So it's not particularly large, only one entrance and exit. And I think like many women do when it's dark outside and you're by yourself, you maybe do a little loop around to make sure you're actually by yourself. And that's what she confirmed. And she pulled into a spot, hung out in her car for a couple of minutes and around 6.45, she gets out. She walks up to the front door because it is early in the morning. You know, 6.45 is early. She checks the front door. It is unlocked. And then she walks back to her car, gets all of her court reporting equipment out, which can be pretty bulky. And as she is now heading back into the building, she takes about one, maybe three steps, and she falls. And she hits the ground really hard, so hard that she suffers a really significant fracture. Of her knee? Of her her ankle. Oh, okay. She gets taken to the hospital. She undergoes multiple surgeries, and, you know, the the damages flow from there. This is a situation where she ended up actually having to get the hardware taken out. And the reason I had mentioned earlier where the continuance of the trial was helpful was because— we were supposed to try the case. It got continued to from the spring of 23 to the fall of 23. In the summer of 23, she needed the surgery to get the hardware taken out. So we were able to get that evidence in and get another deposition of our doctor, her treating physician, who was amazing. I mean, he, we went through his qualifications. He seems like a really competent surgeon. And But it's an example of even with sometimes the best medicine, it, you're not necessarily, you're not going to get back to baseline. And that's what I was hoping to establish with this particular doctor. But that is the the setup of it. And when we started taking depositions in the case, the defense was from the property management company. And I had always thought this was a pretty reasonable defense. I'm not saying they weren't negligent. I couldn't find, you know, some aspect of they could have done something better that would have helped avoid this injury but their defense was look we hired a professional to do it and we expected them to do it oh yeah that's a good defense that's always a good i thought you (laughs) i feel like you were doubling down because i raised my eyebrows my raised eyebrows were oh that seems like a reasonable thing to say as a plaintiff's attorney acknowledge the good defenses and in these cases especially with corporate properties there's often this like structure of owner contractor often things. So that's a lesson to everyone that if you're ever evaluating a slip and fall on ice and snow at a corporate property, on the defense side, you're trying to figure out who you're going to tender your defense to. And on the plaintiff side, you're trying to make sure you have sued everyone involved. Yes. And and so the, the property manager's defense was, look, we hired someone who was apparently a professional to come and do it. They had a good reputation and and that's why we brought them in and it was their responsibility to maintain the parking lot. Now, Elizabeth did get the admissions from the corporate rep slash expert for the property management company that it was their responsibility and obligation to keep that lot safe and clear, but... But it's reasonable that that's how they pursued it as opposed to... You know, I mean, I think a jury understands that real world scenario of we had this duty, we outsourced it. Mm -hmm. Yes, we understand that the buck stops with us, but we thought our outsourcing was sufficient. So it shouldn't be on us if someone's to blame. It's the people we hired. 
And it's important in these cases that when you have multiple parties to make sure you're getting all the documents between them. Uh, but the contract laid out that this was an extremely high priority, high um, profile lot, meaning that the Snow Company recognized that this was one that, you know, we really got to take care of and we got to make sure we're doing it right. And part of making sure you're doing it right is making sure you're doing it on time. Now, that then leads into the Snow Company's defense, which was typical office buildings open <laughs> between yeah. 8 and 9 a.m. 8 and 9 a.m. So that we don't actually have to be out there clearing until, you know, as long as we get it cleared by 8 or 9 a.m. And in this particular case, what was bizarre was I had asked for all the work orders. And I said, can you prove to me when exactly you were out there? And they produced these work orders that apparently demonstrated that the subcontractor's employee was on that lot, actively de-icing the lot between 6.35 a.m. and 6.48 a.m. Now, the problem with that is my client got there at 6.40, and there was no one out there. And she testified that there was no de-icer on the lot. So there was no one actively de-icing anything. We also had an independent witness who testified that there was no de-icer on the lot. There was no one in the lot de-icing. And also that she saw the patch of ice that my client had slipped on as well. That witness to the immediate aftermath of the fall, because she was the one that actually called 911, I think she may have been the most important witness in the case. She really sealed it up because this is someone coming in who does not have a bias who does not have any stake in the outcome. She was really credible, very likable, and I, I think the jury believed her. And so when she says, I saw the ice, and I certainly didn't see slush or ice melt or any of the scientific things that get into these chemicals, it was believable. So that was an important aspect of it. The other important thing from these work orders, though, that I think the jury really de-iced the lot in the day prior and then the days after it took him around half an hour to do it always took him around half an hour somehow incredibly the day that my client falls he gets it done in 13 minutes and I thought that that was a weird fact but there was I didn't quite have that smoking gun but then after we had gotten these corporate representatives done and they had kind of locked themselves into these testimonies and that's the other important thing too is knowing timing witnesses and I think it's important in these cases and really in any case to try to take a corporate rep as early as possible so that they, it worked out here, to try to take a corporate rep earlier so that they they lock themselves into certain testimony. And then Well, your you corporate rep in this one is your defendant. There's no one right. else to, yeah, it's not like, you know, a hospital where the doctor is doing oh, this. Yes. And then, yeah. Yeah, that's a good distinction. It, in a case where the, I mean, this is the defendant. Yeah. So take it early. You got to take the deposition and figure out what they know. But after that, we had then taken the deposition of a former employee of the property manager who confirmed actually that the doors automatically opened every morning at 6.30 a.m. And I was like, huh, sounds like that's not a typical office building that opens between 8 and 9. Sounds like it's maybe a high-profile office building in the business district of St. Louis County that opens really early because guess what there maybe their tenants don't keep normal office hours and, and you know that would be part of what was communicated to the snow removal company like this is when 
were open for business. Oh, well, that was part of the issue. Nobody communicated it. Oh, Nobody Lord. offered the information. That's why I said the com- that's why I understand that the commercial property manager had some defenses. But in my brain, I'm thinking that's a real easy thing to say. If, by the way, we have uh, a high profile office with lots of these high profile tenants who in the buildings 24 seven, but they mean need someone to come in early. And Elizabeth, did they have security? I, don't. I was just wondering, you know, like if they had security who like opens a security desk or something at 630, like that's number one person. You know, if they're willing to protect their tenants, you know, their safety, then wouldn't part and parcel of that be making sure that all, you know, because weather like that and freezing temperatures, that's early morning stuff mm-hmm. when that happens anyway. Which is what I've learned from handling, you know, a slip and fall on ice with the same, you know, owner, contractor, subcontractor is And mine was a medical facility where they were doing like outpatient surgery. And so that was the same issue. Like someone would be scheduled for surgery at like 8 a.m., but they were supposed to get there at like 615. Mm -hmm. And our client was a nurse who was walking in at like 530 and that was part of that case, too, which is so interesting. And I will say, the once this piece of evidence came out, the snow removal contracting business, as well as the pr- property manager, both named their corporate representatives as experts, which I thought was interesting to not get an independent expert, but whatever, not my decision. And Elizabeth took the expert commercial property manager deposition and got some really great admissions out of him basically explaining yeah we expected the the lot to have been cleared by the time the plaintiff would have shown up basically because we have these these kinds of of clientele we have doctors we have lawyers we know that these industries don't work nine to five this was not a typical office building like the other defendant said and and so for this case even though i i never really loved the commercial property case it was really strategically helpful to have another defendant in the case pointing the finger mm-hmm. and the attention back at the remaining defendants as opposed to, in these cases, what oftentimes happens, and we can talk about the issue of comparative fault, which is where they then point the finger back at the plaintiff, right? And so that I, th- I thought strategically it was really good to have them in there. And, they, and because they were a defendant, I think that they had that extra maybe motivation to really lay out the facts that would be helpful for them that then in turn were helpful for us. Mm -hmm. So we tried the case starting this past Monday. Amy picked the jury. The first day we were able to get one witness, play one witness. It was actually my snow removal expert. I hired, which first time working with one of those. (laughs) And he explained what should have been done in this case, in particular, the fact that it's, the work should have been done sooner. I mean, that's, I think that was the big thing in this case. You should have just been out there sooner and you should have figured it out. You should have asked the right questions. Additionally, we had our, our witness, we had our, my client's doctor, and then we called all three of the corporate representatives adversely in our case. And I, one right after the other, one right after the other. And I wanted it staggered like that because again, it, I think the best the best strategy for us was to try to get the defendants to point the finger at each other as much as possible and take the heat off of, of my client, you know, in the comparative fault aspect. 
And I think that having them all sit in the room and they just go boom, 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 one after the other, they don't have time to necessarily get their story straight, get prepared. I took the snow removal contractor first and he probably put up the most fight. He does expert work as well. So he is a pretty well-trained witness, but he had locked himself into some pretty bad testimony, especially when he tried to change his testimony from his first deposition to his expert deposition a year later. So that was, I thought, I thought helpful and effective. The next guy, the subcontractor, I kind of felt bad for him a little bit. He he just agreed with everything I said. Yes, <laughs> no. Clearly, that was what his lawyer had told him to do. <laughs> just don't fight. Just don't fight. <laughs> I think you know the the first guy. He was on the stand for an hour, hour and a half, and the defendants did do their directs with their witnesses as well. And this particular guy. He and I had fought a lot. His his attorney kept, you know, sort of re- redirecting. And at one point, I thought there was, I was really frustrated because I thought there was a maybe a misrepresentation of, a, of an exhibit that I had created as a demonstrative. And I was very offended, <laughs> frankly, that that he had misrepresented what the exhibit showed to make me, make it look like I had falsified something. Ugh. And I stood up and I was like, Your Honor, I have one question. And the judge was right at lunchtime and he goes, I'm not letting you ask any more questions. And Amy even yeah, Amy had even whispered to me of he's not gonna let you ask any more questions. Like, don't ask. And I was like, But it's a lie. I have to. I have to address it. He's attacking my character. She's like, judge isn't gonna allow it. And sure enough, the judge shot me down so fast and I was like, Okay, lesson learned here. Yeah, but didn't you show the jury I have something to say about this? Yes. Maybe even even if you didn't get to ask your question. Yes. So I don't know. Sounds like damn good strategy to me. The next two witnesses I thought flowed really smoothly. I had the subcontractor and again, he just, yes, no, yes, correct. Yes. (laughs) And Elizabeth had the property manager slash expert. And again, other than the time you had to impeach him, he did agree with a lot of what you said. And then after that, we, we put on our, our clients and they were both wonderful, lovely people. They did an excellent job. We also played the doctor via video, and he, again, he was excellent, very credible, has no stake in this outcome, so no reason to lie. And after that, the only witnesses the defendants brought were two employees of the snow removal contractor and then the subcontractor, who I had not deposed, so those were surprises. I was sort of learning those on the fly. And I had tried to prepare outlines ahead of time, um, you know, of of things I wanted to ask. And what I realized is when you when you have a witness like that who you don't know what they're going to say, there's no point to having an outline. The important thing there is to just listen to what their testimony is and try to come up with questions in the moment that is going to directly address what they just. And then we closed and the jury had it out for three hours. And then when they came back, it was a 0% fault on the commercial property manager, which, again, never really loved that case. <laughs> but it was 37% on the contractor, 33% on the subcontractor, and then 30% comparative fault on my client, which Amy, she helped with the jury instructions, and you know she sort of gave us the golden advice of if you have a case like this, you always submit on comparative because it's a lot better to to get a little bit of fault on your client as opposed to get 100% dumped. So that is, I think, really good, solid advice, even though I I don't think the evidence of comparative fault was great, but I think juries want to 
I think juries want to believe something like this wouldn't happen to them. Yeah. Right. I think that's it. And so mm-hmm. they they find a, they find some way to apply some fault to the plaintiff. And I also think that they believe that what no matter how credible like your client is, your witnesses is that like she what like they weren't paying attention like a little bit. Like it doesn't matter if, if she's telling the full truth of what happened. Like she wasn't being careful enough. Cause right. Just. But something that was kind of funny was we won our verdict. And it was a four hundred thousand dollar verdict for our client and it was 11 to 1 there's mm. only one juror who didn't sign the verdict form and afterwards I asked one of the jurors you know hey you, you don't have to talk to me but I'm just really curious like what happened with with juror number whatever you know number 12 that didn't sign and this juror is like oh they wanted to give 100% fault to your client and I said oh wow and then the juror leans in and just goes yeah She's one of those. <laughs> okay, okay, so this is nothing I did. Had you identified that yes. in jury selection and not, you just had to... Not in jury selection. We didn't uh, identify it there. I thought that I thought that she'd be okay. Where I realized that we had lost her was actually during my client's direct. Because mm-hmm. my client, having had all these surgeries, there is some clear deformity with her ankles. And you can see a difference between the injured ankle and the uninjured ankle. And so in order to basically demonstrate this for the jury, um, you know, as a disfigurement she now deals with, I had her stand up and and show the jury her ankle. It's very visible. You can see it. And this juror kind of leaned over, kind of had a weird smarmy look on her face and goes, hmm, spin for me and kind of twirls her finger like that. Like from the jury box? From the jury box. Weird. But she's talking to a dog. And my client looks at me and I was like, you know, can 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 you just turn around and just, dem- I guess, d- demonstrate for the juror whatever. And she did, she did so. And then this juror kind of goes, hmm, and leans back and sits back in her chair with her arms crossed. And I go, oh, no, uh. we, we, lost, we lost her. But the other, the other 11... We convinced the other 11 and they they were all, you know, some of them came up and talked to us and they were all very kind. And, you know, I, I really do appreciate when a, a jury pays attention. And, and these folks were like they were awake. They were watching everything. They were taking notes. It, it seemed very much to me like they knew what was going on and they understood the case. So it was a great experience it's always great to get back in trial i have not been in trial since may of last year so i mm-hmm. kind of felt like i had to shake a couple of the cobwebs off it was great to be back there with amy and then for, with elizabeth for the first time and watch elizabeth absolutely kill it up there um it, it is honestly I, sometimes i forgot how this was your first time because you were so calm and collected uh, even it's her brand. Those, it really is. <laughs> even with those multiple objections that happened, which I, I partially wonder if that was maybe a strategic decision to see if they could rattle you and you did not let it rattle you and you just kept plowing along with your questions and you got directly the admissions that we needed um, and then did a stellar job with our client putting him on. And yeah, it was just a really incredible team effort i think that that's one of the great things about our firm is that we when we go to trial we're we're going all in and it, it we're attacking you with all the forces that we've got 
and even the the you know my clients said, "Wow, you've got a lot of people here." And I said, "Yeah, cavalry's all here. That's how." Yeah. We <laughs> so it was it was great. Obviously, it's it's wonderful to get a win, and I'm I'm incredibly uh, happy with the the results and the team effort. And it was just it was a privilege to represent these people. Now, a couple of things though that I think before we wrap up, just to sort of finish talking about these slip and fall cases, because I I realized. I had not worked on a slip and fall on ice case. I've had other premises cases, but specifically on ice, I have not had a case like this since I was on the defense side mm. when I was defending a company that had been sued after someone slipped on ice. And so I had to do some, I guess, refreshing, some re-education on the matter. And I, I just kind of wanted to quickly touch on that because... Actually, another colleague recently asked me after we got back from trial, said, you know, I think I have a slip and fall on ice. Can you explain this rule to me? And I said, well, now I can. So first that, you know, the, the thing that you have to consider, whether you're on the plaintiff side and you're deciding if you want to take a case or if you're on the defense side and you're thinking about how do I defend the case, is this idea of the natural accumulation rule. I think most states, if not all states, have some adoption of this rule. I think I've heard some people call it the Connecticut rule and some people call it the Massachusetts rule. I don't know which state. <laughs> Very way, snowy and icy states. Like it's in the Northeast. <laughs> yes. um, but under the natural accumulation rule, a property owner has no duty to remove and is not liable for injuries caused by natural accumulations of snow and ice or to warn of the dangers associated with natural accumulations of snow and ice. Obviously, that was not the case we had here. This was a refreeze situation and there was someone who's in fact, couple parties whose specific duty it was to keep this lot free and clear. And it was not actively in the middle of that weather event. The weather event that had caused that refreeze had occurred several days prior. Additionally, another issue that came up and that you have to consider is what exactly was the contractual duty? If you are a snow removal contractor, you only have to meet the terms of your contract, which makes sense, right? It's this idea that if two parties have entered into some sort of contractual agreement, an outside third party, so let's say a guest, is, is not in privity to that contract, meaning that there may not necessarily be a duty applied. So the contractor could argue that they don't have a duty to this guest of the property. It would only you know, extend up to the property manager or the owner of the premises. However, if there is evidence that you know falls outside of the contract showing that there was independent negligence outside of um, you know the, again the four corners then that's something that you may be able to submit on but you need to make sure that when you take these cases you read the contract very carefully and understand whether or not the terms have been met because if the terms of the contract were met even if there was snow ice whatever you may not have a case there because they don't have a duty to your client so those are the two sort of pitfalls that I learned about having done this on the plaintiff side now, several years after that last case that I had, that I, I think everyone, regardless of who you are representing, needs to be aware of and, you know, cogniz certainly cognizant of as you are developing evidence in your case. Elizabeth, last question goes to you. What was your favorite moment in a trial? My favorite moment of the trial was when I was done putting on my first witness because it's a moment that I've been like anticipating for I mean well I got licensed in 2019 and like 
it has been like been leading up to it and like for a very long time and amy's husband met us out afterwards and he was like look you'll never have to do that for the first time again and like that was just like a relief to have it over with and not have to because i feel like i've been like pretending to be a trial lawyer for a long time <laughs> and like i know i do like all of the work up to it and like it's not like nothing against me that i haven't tried a case before but it felt like i was just kind of like faking my way through it and now i'm finally like gone through the whole thing so um that was my favorite moment to get through it for the first time good for you i'm so happy to hear that well thank you everyone for listening to our heels in the courtroom trial team uh and their recent wonderful result for their client we of course are so proud of them and happy that you shared this case with me today especially now that my FOMO has been in the background and I can now feel part of this wonderful result so so can our listeners thank you for joining us on another episode of Heels in the Courtroom you can catch our episodes on Wednesdays and we'll see you next time thanks Heels in the Courtroom is brought to you by the Simon Law Firm At the Simon Law Firm PC, we believe in the power of pooling resources in order to create powerful results. We often lend our trial skills and experience to lawyers around the country to achieve better results for their clients. Our attorneys welcome the opportunity to work with you on your case, offering vast resources, seasoned litigators, and a sterling reputation. You can contact us at 314-241-2929. And if you enjoyed the podcast... Feel free to share your thoughts with Amy, Liz, Erica, Mary, Elizabeth at heelsinthecourtroom.law. And subscribe today because the best lawyers never stop learning.